0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is Green and Gold History. Fifty plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History.
1: This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland Athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at neweracap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. It is time for Episode 8 of Memories with Boos. Steve Usenich, the A's longtime equipment manager who is retiring after 54 years with the organization since day one back in 1968. And Boos, we last left off as the 1980 season was underway. and We'll get back to that, but it's All-Star Week. And the A's at this point have one All-Star, and that's Matt Olson who's going to participate in the Home Run Derby. But I'm guessing... All the years that you've been around, including the All-Star game here at the Coliseum in 1987, do bring back some memories for you. Where do you want to start with uh, Oakland A's and All-Star memories?
0: Well, I think it was a little sidebar on one of the notes today in the papers about, in 1975, how many All-Stars we had that year. And that included the manager and a pitching coach. And I'll never forget that uh, that was the year we lost Catfish Hunter to the Yankees. Charlie Finley ran into Catfish in the on the field before the game and he was wearing a cowboy hat and catfish said to Charlie, Hey, I really like your hat. And of course, catfish was wearing a Yankee hat being an all-star from New York. (laughs) And Charlie says, I like yours too. Not really. And that made all the papers. It was kind of funny. They made a funny quip about that. But other years at All Stars, we've had quite a few. We've had some years we only had one. Um, I believe that uh, we suffer from uh, not enough fan voting in Oakland, uh, not just the Oakland fans, but across the country, not being on very many games of the week. Uh, featured in prime time. So that, that's kind of hurt us over the years where the fans were voting for the positions and then and, and, uh, even some of the writers and the, the way the uh, players vote. So, uh, but the All-Star Week is always fun. We had a great time in 87. That was an 11 or 12 inning game that the National League won two to nothing. Uh, all the games on the West Coast, those, that era, those years were low-scoring affairs because the game started about five twenty-five, five thirty, and the sun was brutal. And a lot of times, the pitchers were in the sun and the hitters weren't, and they couldn't see. But um, the '87 game was uh, very special because we had a, a slew of all-stars, and it was on my birthday, so uh, I, I couldn't celebrate the the win of the American League. I had to take care of the National League, and they won. And, but uh, fun time. I, I look back on that game, uh, July fourteenth. Correct, that's the day. 12th
1: July 12th, and there was. I counted as if I correct 15 Hall of Famers played between between the two teams.
0: That was amazing. And guys like Ozzy Smith and Mike Schmidt, National League, American League with Ripken and and all theirs. Uh, That was a star studded both teams. I, I don't know if there were that many All Star, I mean, that many Hall of Famers in any of the All Star games besides that one.
1: You always heard the old days, boost that the league president would come in and give the pep talk. Were you privy to that for that game in, in 87?
0: I was. Uh, Bart Giamatti was the National League president, and I was in the visitor's clubhouse, and he came in and said, we got a good thing going. American League had won like two out of the last three or two out of the last four. Let's stop that. Let's get back to the dominance of the 60s and the 70s at the National League had over the American league. And it was a cool little pep talk. And uh, Jim was just such a baseball fan and baseball missed out on him not being a commissioner for very long. It's too bad.
1: As we go back to the, uh, to the 80 season when the Haas family took over the organization, bought it from Charlie Finley. I do want to get to that, but also 1980 was really the first full season or the season that began what was going to be a hall of fame career for, for Ricky Henderson, who's the local kid went to Oakland tech and you're an Oakland guy. Do you remember Ricky as the high school star and, and then when the ACE drafted him in 1976, and then once he got to the big leagues, the kind of force he immediately became with his legs.
0: You know, it's funny is, uh I remember him being a football star more so than baseball, but he was drafted by us good scout out there, got him and, uh, Uh, He signed with us. I'm not sure the family needed money, but he wanted to play baseball and he'd probably have a longer career and that's evident. But uh, I do remember him as being a great running back at Oakland tech. And when we drafted him, we had the Burrell family working for us. uh, And they knew the family of Ricky and then talked about what a great star Ricky was going to be. And I said, well, I know he's a good football player. I didn't know much about his baseball and then see how he thrived and what he did in Modesto that year. And then, Uh, in the minor leagues right after that, then getting called up in 79 and just career just took off. When you,
1: when you talk about the Haas family, how diametrically different was the Haas family and what they felt like they wanted to do for the organization or for the community and what you had been dealing with since day one with Charlie Finley?
0: Well, there's no doubt in my mind that Billy Martin saved this franchise for the East Bay and for Oakland. He came in and still the winning attitude. We had lost 108 games a year before, and Billy got us to play two games over 500. It was a successful season. We had only drawn some 310,000 a year before. We drew over 800,000, and that was a big move. I mean, 800,000 now is nothing, but it was a big move in those days, and uh, that got some interest going in in uh, the local ownership with the Haas family. They saw the A's as a viable part of the community, and wanted a team to stay. So uh, all the rumors were done. They stepped forward and negotiated with Charlie Finley, and the sale was agreed upon in August, finalized in November, and uh, they took over. Of course, they had a lot of rebuilding to do. We had no scouts. We virtually had no minor league system. Uh, Equipment was at a rarity, very little equipment, all the way through the minor leagues. Um, We needed some stability in our minor league franchises, and that came about with Tacoma. In 81, uh, being our Triple A franchise seemed like we were the ugly stepsister bouncing around with Ogden, Utah, San Jose, Vancouver over the years, Des Moines, Iowa, Tucson, and Charlie not giving much respect or uh, uh influence to the Triple A clubs. They got tired of Charlie when their agreement was had expired, they moved on, and so did Charlie. So that wasn't a big thing, but it really did. Billy really saved the franchise in Oakland. I mean, being a local guy. Of course, he was at the height of his notoriety then because of the Miller-like commercials and his arguments with George Steinbrenner. And uh, so uh, a winner Billy was, and, and he could get the most out of players right away.
1: I was a, an intern in 1981 in the summer of 81 booths with uh, NBC Radio New York. I got there on a Sunday, and Thursday night Tom Seaver was coming to town to pitch for the Reds. Against the Mets, he thought it was a complete game shutout. I think he gave up four hits, whatever. And I didn't go to the game because I said, well, I'll just see another game at some point during the summer, which never happened because the strike happened the very next day uh, in June of, of 1981, uh, really uh, some dark times. What, what do you remember about how all that came about?
0: You know, what's funny is uh, the night before, <clears throat> late Thursday night into Friday morning, Cleveland Indians flew into town. And we had to unpack their bag, do their laundries, do their uniforms, as always. And by about 8 o'clock on the West Coast the next morning, it had been announced that they were on strike. And we were told players weren't allowed to come in, but then they finally relented on that. So players came in. Before I got into the ballpark, the Indians traveling secretary had come in to the clubhouse and taken away all the equipment bags. His ownership said, do not let them have their equipment bags, do not let them have their suitcases, suitcases. And he said, well, I can't go to everybody's room and get their suitcases. But he did get the equipment bag. So it's really funny. The Indian players came in, and they are all walking out with garbage bags full of their mitts, their gloves, whatever other workout gear they might need to uh, work out during the strike. So the strike goes on, and it's finally settled. And they've got like a, I don't know, seven-day workout period in August. And so because the Raiders were still at the Coliseum and the dates that were set to work out, we had to move our workouts uh, workouts up to Cal Berkeley and use their facility up there. We dressed at the Coliseum and then bust up to Cal Berkeley. And we worked out there, and then we had a couple of exhibition games. We flew down to San Diego, and I'll never forget to play an exhibition game. And the Padres announcers were saying, hey, opening day is next week, and your Padres are in first place. And they'd never been that close to first place in August in their lives. But then flying back, that's when the announcement was made, that uh, they're going to split the season. And since we had already finished in first the best record in the West in June, we were guaranteed to go into the playoffs. We were flying back and there was an air traffic controller strike, and that's when Ronald Reagan fired a bunch of the air traffic controllers. And there was a plane and we were like in the Santa Barbara area and a plane that came by. It wasn't a near miss, but it was closer than you've ever seen planes before it made you think about the strike of the baseball players and the strike of the air traffic controllers and which one was more important. And it was definitely the air traffic controllers. So then we, so then we played our first ever exhibition game in Candlestick Park. We had never played the Giants in the Bay Area before that. And uh, we never had the, the Bay Bridge series like the freeway series between the Dodgers and the Angels. So we had a game over there. And that was going to be two days before we opened the season and had a great crowd, baseball's back, and Billy Martin just went right down the left field line, I'll never forget this, and threw every ball he could find into the stands, just gaining popularity, gaining fans, even giant fans loving Billy, and uh, that kind of set the stage for the second half. We struggled a little bit, and we were actually the only team at the end that had uh, won the first half of the season that was in contention for the second half, and we go into Kansas City, and we're probably going to play them in a the playoffs, and and this they're they're devising the playoff system as we go. So they said the first the team that wins the first half will get the home field advantage, which will get get games uh, three, four, and five if necessary. So we go into Kansas City to finish the season. They beat us the first game, and they pretty much clinched a tie. But we win game two, and we win game three because we won game three. That forced Kansas City to fly that night to Cleveland to play the Indians in a doubleheader to figure out, because there have been some rainouts to figure out who really wins the the AL West for the second half. And and Kansas City was so mad that we beat them. And I'll never forget the play. Lee May pinched hit for Kansas City with a couple guys on base. And he hit a fly ball, and Dwayne Murphy made a catch against the wall, kind of like Joe Rudy's catch in the 72 series. And it was, he makes the catch, Kansas City goes to Cleveland. If he doesn't make the catch, Ken City wins, and we stay home and start the playoffs on Tuesday. So Ken City had to go to Cleveland to play a doubleheader. Well, they won the first game, that clinched the division, so they didn't have to do that. They came home, and then we won the next three games and swept that series and went on to New York. But it was a '81 was just a fun season, um, somewhat like last year, kind of different, uh, but uh, we won uh, the division that year and went on the second round.
1: Why do you think things went so sideways in '82 with Billy? It's Just third year, the team has a, you know, only sixty-eight wins, and I know you know Billy can be a meteor at times, and maybe it does burn out. But what do you remember about you know what was the beginning of a you know a tough stretch of years for for Oakland baseball?
0: Well, I think other teams had caught up to us. Uh, they're up on Billy's strategy on stealing bases, double steals, that type thing. Um, I think other teams were having better years. We caught uh, those two years, 80 and 81, uh, the Angels were having down years. So now they finally play well in 82 to win a division. But uh, I think things just caught up with. we had a bunch of injuries. We kept signing players. We'd bring in a guy named Preston Hanna. And I can't remember some of the other non-entities we brought in. It was just a bad year, and it kind of uh, – I won't say our guys – Thought that they were going to win the division easy, but there was a sense of complacency with them when the season did start.
1: I, I want to go back to something that that you have a you know a a mind like a trap when it comes to uniform numbers, and you know all the numbers of all the players that have ever donned the Oakland uniform. Now, Ricky, as we look up at the, the Coliseum up on Mount Davis, you see the number twenty four, which was not his first number. He went from thirty nine to thirty five. 24. What's the history behind that?
0: Oh, contraire. He went to 22 in between. Okay. Um, he was uh, 35 is the number I gave him for spring training in 79. I mean, here's a guy that hadn't played AAA yet, and we didn't bring that many guys to camp, but 35 was probably one of our higher numbers and more available numbers. So I gave him 35, and he wore that through the time he got traded to New York. So he went to New York, and he became number 24. And he got traded back during the 89 season and 24 was worn by Ron Hassey and Ron had been up with a few couple, a few different teams. he would worn a few different numbers, but 24 was one of them. So I gave him that number. So we trade back for Ricky and he's wearing 22 and then uh, Ricky makes a deal with Hassey. He's going to buy him a suit of clothes, a, a new suit. and And Ron would give up number 24 and Ron actually, I think went to 27 at the time, which hadn't been retired yet. And Ricky became 24. So uh, I think the 24 was just because of the New York uh, situation. So
1: the A's experienced some tough times. And you remember Tony La Russa as a teenage shortstop playing for the A's in, in 1968, coming from Kansas City. And all of a sudden, in July of 86, after being let go by the Chicago White Sox, he becomes the A's manager. Whoa. How big a deal was that when, when that took place?
0: First of all, Tony was uh, not a teenager in Oakland. He was he was a grown man by then. He was probably 22, 23 years old in 68. But um, so we've got the bad year going in 86. Don't have a very good club. Can see some players coming. Jose was a rookie. And so we weren't playing well. So Jackie Moore gets let go. And we go an interim manager for a week or so and Jeff Newman and Tony had just been fired by the White Sox and everybody in our organization, not everybody, but myself, Walt Jockney, Mickey Morabito were enthralled by the thought about bringing Tony in. He's a new wave manager and he can get a lot of out of players. So they started the, the talk with uh, Tony, Sandy Alderson, I think went to Chicago and tony wasn't sure if he wanted to manage right away he had young daughters he said could he could afford to take a summer off spend more time with them but it became apparent that we wanted tony and tony took a look at the organization saw the people in charge like some of the people here he, like, he had had a relationship with walt jockney back in des moines iowa when walt was met was the general manager there and tony was a manager so uh they agreed to bring tony on board and Obviously, the rest is history, but it was very exciting because he was a guy that kind of stabilized the team, brought back um, uh, in, with the up-and-coming players, taught them the right way. Fundamentals were weak before, and then he, he stressed that in the first spring training 87. And 87 seemed like it was a successful year, and every time he said that to Tony during the winter, he didn't think so. He got mad at you for saying that. And I said, well, Tony, it was the first year we would played 500 ball in six years, so. It made a lot, it made a lot of sense to us.
1: I want to get to that first game was at Fenway park for Tony and Dave Stewart, who was let go by the Phillies in May. And the Oakland kid comes back two weeks later to pitch for the A's pitch mostly at the bullpen. And so he's given the ball against Roger Clemens. And it seems like this is the birth of Dave Stewart that we knew as the great competitor. What do you remember about that?
0: Totally agree with you. That was the rebirth of J- Dave Stewart. Um, He gets gets a start against Roger Clemens in Boston, his first game, Tony and Dave Duncan's first game with the A's. And Stu, as he did many times later, beats Roger Clemens. And I knew Dave from growing up in Oakland a little bit. I knew him when he was with Texas. I didn't know him with the Dodgers, but when he was with Texas. And uh, just a gentleman, a person who cares about the community, but one of the great competitors to ever wear the Oakland uniform.
1: And then finally, you touched on, I don't know if you can give a short answer when I say Jose Canseco, but what comes to mind?
0: Well, I mean, I watched the kid come up to the minor leagues and we kind of heard about the guy. And then this big human being shows up in spring training the first time we'd seen him in 85. And he uh, had a pretty good year in double-A, went to triple-A, did successful there, and came up. And I think he hit 300 the, the last month of the season in, his, in 85, and then he became rookie of the year in 86. Uh, you knew with McGuire coming and at the time we had Rob Nelson coming and Walt Weiss was the number one draft choice, that you could see the foundation was being set for the late 80s. Well, Vuce,
1: that's episode eight. When we get back together again after the All-Star break, it'll be – 1987, it'll be Dennis Eckersley and, and the, the conversion that Tony makes with him and how that may in many ways uh, kind of changed the way teams run their pitching staffs. Uh, episode 8, always great conversation. Boost, thank you so much.
0: Enjoyed it as always. Take care.
1: Steve Houston, it's so our Memories with Boost as we have them every Thursday here on Ace Cat.
0: This has been a presentation of the Oakland
1: Athletics.